Hi there, and welcome to Ready, Set, Change, the podcast where we talk about organizational and personal change. Our next guest is Senior Partner Emerita and Senior Advisor at McKinsey and author Joanna Barsh. Joanna has written a number of books, including Centered Leadership and Grow Wherever You Work, Straight Talk to Help You with Your Toughest Challenges. Joanna is well known for her leadership research, her advocacy for women, and it's very exciting that she will be releasing new research coming in the next few weeks about women and people of color in leadership. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I am so excited to talk with you because um, of your research, your books, and also because of the focus that you have had, not just on um, any particular group, but very specifically on a number of different groups. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about why you or how you became involved with researching on leadership? Uh, So it goes back to 2004. Uh, Back then, I was uh, 50 years old. Uh, I was a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. I was supposed to feel like I was on top of the world. Gosh, I had a great apartment. I'm married, two kids. I still love everybody in my family to this day. (laughs) And I woke up one day in 2004 and thought to myself, wow, I just feel empty and invisible. I don't know why. I never got to be a leader. So something is fundamentally wrong with who I am. So I took that thought and I, and I, I held on to it for quite a few weeks uh, until I went out for a walk with my husband back then, 5.30 in the morning, because we had young kids and I was a working mother. And I told him my feelings. And, and that's when he said, just go buy yourself a pair of shoes. So uh, I did. <laughs> I bought some really good shoes and they didn't work. It didn't work. I mean, if you're a man listening to this, then you can understand that. But if you're a woman, you're just thinking, what? What's going on? And here's what hit me. I felt at the time that I was lacking some incredibly important leadership trait or set of traits, and that if I could talk to other leaders in the world, women in particular who had made it to the top, I would be able to understand where I was deficient. And that set me on just a pattern of interviewing people on a confidential basis to really understand what makes them tick. And they all happened to be at the top of their game. In the beginning, I interviewed only women around the world, lots and lots of countries. And then I began to interview men as well and started to understand the glimmer that this is not about deficiency at all. It's about daring to open the doors to yourself, to face what's already in you, but you haven't been willing to let come out. So that's where I'm at. Wow. I find that very inspiring because I think that, you know, it is, um, I think it is a common condition that's not often named, you know, that sort of sense of where am I in the world and and how do I get where I thought I was going to be? Yeah. So so I, uh, I have learned that almost all the leaders that I've interviewed, first of all, didn't think that they were leaders or at least didn't start out 
thinking that way. And uh, they were human beings just like me. And they, they were leading, particularly the women that I met uh, at, in the beginning, they were leading with a very different set of traits that I had thought leadership should be about. So, you know, we all think about leaders, right? And we think about very tall people who have big shoulders and no matter what is happening in the world, their faces are blank and they seem a little bit friendly, but not too friendly and always knowing the right thing to say. Yes. And that wasn't me at all. <laughs> I'm short. I bounce around a lot. I am silly. I make comments that are totally inappropriate. And so I thought, of course, I could never be a leader. And now it turns out leaders are actually quite different, particularly today. And maybe this has something to do about a work environment. But I personally have seen it over and over again. Leaders understand purpose and they have a shared purpose amongst their whole community. And they spend time developing purpose, connecting with people on purpose, listening to other people's sense of purpose. The second thing is that they reframe. They're not Pollyanna. They don't look at the rain and go, oh, it's actually sunny outside. But they look at the rain and they say, you know, there's something good happening here. Let me figure that out. Oh, the flowers are going to grow or whatever. They connect. Everybody feels personally connected to a great leader. Even if you've never met them, you feel a connection because they're human. They've touched you. They use energy. They use emotion. They use their whole being, not just what's inside their head. And they engage, which really is a simple way of saying they take risk. They take action. They're not always right, but they're in the game. They're fully committed in the game. And then finally, they've got energy. They understand the use of energy. They also understand that they need to create more energy and they need to take care of themselves. As a woman in business, in senior levels, I never took care of myself. I thought that's not what leaders do. Leaders burn out because they're so committed. And in fact, that's actually not true. If you want to sustain having tremendous impact on your organization, it's your job to take care of yourself. So that's part of it as well. So what is some of the, what are some of the challenges that we see, um, you know, in, in our rising leaders and our new leaders who are trying to, you know, emerge from the pack and, and learn to really um, become that connector, be able to communicate that purpose. What are some of the challenges that they're facing in this new environment? So I think there's a huge difference between being a 50 year old, which is what I was when I started out, and being a 25 or 30 year old. Um, all of us have millennials in the workplace. And the difference today is that it's hard to remember, right? We always think about, well, when I was coming up in the world, it was like this. Today is much harder. It is much less stable as an environment. It, it actually is, and we're in economic decline compared to when I was growing up. When I was in my 20s, I thought I could do anything. I had all the time in the world, and if I didn't make it this year, I could do something else completely different next year, and probably you can. In fact, I started out in the movie business, went into retail, ended up at business school, went to McKinsey. You can't do that today, because today everybody's in a global race to prove themselves. And what that means is that your rising leaders in your organization 
are impatient. They are immature beyond belief because they don't know what they don't know, but they feel the pressure to get ahead. If they're not learning every hour of the day, they go home with a sense of loss. I've fallen behind. They actually have fallen behind because somebody in their cohort group worked an hour longer or did something more special. And guess what? They're going to find out on social media when they tune in at night. And how's that going to make them feel? So they live with 24-7 pressure, even if their managers don't create it. They already have it. To me, that's the biggest challenge. And now the second biggest challenge is it used to be that you went to a company, you worked really hard, put your head down, and one day you're a VP if that's what you want. And after becoming a VP, it's pretty easy to get to be an SVP by just kind of reading the room, playing the field, doing good work, getting a couple of things done. We've all seen the office. We know what happens. And in fact, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way for them. They may never get to be a VP. Their company may shut down. They may go to a startup thinking, I'm going to be a millionaire like Zuckerberg. And then the next thing that knows, they're out in the street again. You know, the, it's, it's a world in which there's no stable footing. And yet, we want our children and we want the young people in our organizations to stay the course. That's just unrealistic on our parts. Right. And I find that, you know, uh, with many of the folks that I know who are millennials and really do work incredibly hard trying, trying to kind of climb this ladder that doesn't really um, exist, as you said, in the way that it used to when, when uh, you know, you're saying when you were kind of growing up and when I was growing up, it seemed like uh, there was more of a clear path, uh, although I have to admit my path was certainly uh, not very clear <laughs> to me. But I think that, um, you know, that's an excellent point that this lack of stability and this lack of a, of a um, direction really is very difficult. Um, and I do think that there is sort of this pressure to, um, you know, be, be the next whiz kid or to make a billion dollars online or something. And, and that it never occurred to me when I was, um, you know, entering the workforce that I could make a billion dollars. I mean, it, it wasn't a real goal I had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's three, there's three excellent insights in what you just said. There's, first of all, people are making a gazillion dollars today in tech, which nobody ever made in business. It was like, really great. I'm going to be 30 years old and I'm going to make $30,000, I'm gonna make my age. We were all excited about that. Then the second thing is that you can go on social media and see all your friends making, having better vacations, going to better parties, having better lives than you are having. And then the third piece of it is this intense focus on youth, which we didn't used to have. We may have said, don't trust anybody over 30. I was a baby boomer in the 70s, and I do remember at 13 telling a 30-year-old friend of the family that she was no longer trustworthy and would <laughs> never learn to dance because she was too old. And today, we have baby boomers in positions saying, uh, not so fast, kid. I'm going to stay a little longer. I still have a mortgage to pay off, or I still have children to put through school. So these 25-year-olds are like, whoa, I need to make I need to make it. I should quit. Where can I go make a gazillion dollars before I'm 30? That's insane. 
That does not make anybody happy. We know that from the happiness research. And happiness is the core of meaning, which is the core of centered leadership. Without that, you know, it's pretty hard to get your organization of 16 people or 16,000 people. It's really hard to get everybody moving in a good direction. So what kind of advice can you give or can we think of for, uh, for those folks who are, you know, wanting this um, to move into a leadership role and not really sure where, where to start on that? You know, they may be a leader um, in their mind, but how do, we, how do we get folks recognized and how can we assist in um, helping people develop themselves to be better leaders? So uh, that's a great question, April. The, the, uh, I'm not even sure where leadership comes from. Uh, having read tons of books and everybody has an opinion about everything, but there, it's very hard to actually research leadership per se. I do think there are a few things that people do that prepare them for leadership. And it's, I've written about it in the book, Row Wherever You Work. So, so in, let's say you're 30, 35 years old and you're thinking, I wanna be a leader, what's happening? I'm not a, I'm not a leader yet. Well, there's first of all, uh, what are you doing? And is there meaning in what you're doing? And do you understand the purpose, not just of you, but everybody around you? And is there a way that you can help raise the consciousness of purpose of everybody around you? That is leadership. Your ability to see in the future and actually, instead of just doing the job that has to be done today, see the pieces that get put into place so that things can be even better in the future. That's the first thing. The second thing is to get connected. And this is not about those meetups where you rush through the room and you meet as many people as you can because you have all these business cards to give out and they're damn good because you invented them yourself. It's about connecting to people who can teach you and who you can teach. And so you've, you have a deeper sense of who this person is. You have greater curiosity about them and they about you in turn, and these people will help you grow, but you'll also be able to help them be successful. That's the second thing. And I'd say that you have to take some risk. Risk for millennials is a tough thing. There are millennials jumping off of buildings with bungee cords, and then there are millennials who uh, don't take one step because they're afraid that that risk might just destroy their career. So you have to be sort of careful about what amount of risk you can tolerate, but you have to take risk because taking risk means you're out of your comfort zone. You're doing something. You're facing a challenge you haven't faced before. There is a chance you might fail. There's also a chance, in fact, 100%, that you'll learn something. <laughs> Even if you don't succeed, you're going to come out of that. And I know I have a child who is a millennial who's an extraordinary human being, who feels like she is not succeeding because she's not on the path she wants to be. So she left the path. And now where is she? She's kind of in outer space until she sorts out how to get her feet back on the ground. These are scary times. And to take a risk makes it even scarier. Very few of us thrive on risk. Most of us try to manage risk down. However, to be a leader, you are taking on risk and you're doing it publicly in the sense that everybody can see what you're doing 
And so if you don't succeed, they can see that too. And that, that's okay. That's how you learn. Oh, that's excellent. I think that it's so um, helpful to have these steps to kind of think through, you know, how you're connecting and, and how to um, really assess that risk and to step forward into it, knowing that you're, you, you may not, you know, uh, succeed with it, but that you will definitely learn something. Um, I know you've written also and, and have uh, researched quite a bit about women's leadership. And I find that, uh, you know, women millennials, you know, like your daughter, and I have, uh, I have daughters who are also millennials. Um, it really is almost a, a double-edged sword, isn't it, for them to um, try to figure out, you know, how do they move into leadership in this day and age? Do you have um, insight on, you know, uh, anything in particular that millennial women uh, should pay attention to about leadership? So, so I have found um, quite a few young women, and this is probably not true of all women, and certainly is true of many men as well. So we have to be very careful uh, of generalizations that we make. But nonetheless, I found many women worrying about lack of passion. In fact, the lack of passion is such a big topic that it's uh, the first chapter in that book, Grow Wherever You Work. Uh, people have been taught in college, they've been taught in high school, their parents have taught them that they need to be passionate. They're that your manager at work tells you all the time, you need to be passionate. You don't seem passionate today. Like you're supposed to show up at work and like, oh, I can't wait to get to work. I'm so passionate about what I'm doing. And you know, that's just a lie. And why are we telling our children this? Work is not that much fun all the time. It's fun enough of the time or you wouldn't be at that job. You'd go find a different job. Or if you have to make a living, which we all do, you'll stay at that job and try to make the best of it. So I actually counsel young women to be a little less concerned about passion and more concerned about skill building. And what that means is being put in challenging situations, learning tools that you have not been exposed to before, uh, meeting people, even if it's embarrassing or uncomfortable to meet people, meeting people that you can learn from, forcing yourself to uh, say to more senior people, gosh, I really loved it when you said, made that point in the meeting because that sort of turned the whole process around in a positive direction and I wish I could be like that. Can I come with you to your next meeting? So learning how to find mentors and sponsors and not assume they're just gonna show up. So taking responsibility for yourself, in other words, is really hard for men or women. What, the reason it's so hard for women is that many of us were raised to be good girls. When you're a good girl, you assume that if you work hard enough and your work is perfect enough, then people will notice you and they'll praise you and they'll like you and they'll take care of you. And baby, the world has changed. First of all, you're not perfect, nor am I. And second of all, nobody's gonna take care of you. And if they were to take care of you, it would be to your detriment in the long run because often that comes with uh, chains of one kind or another. So there, it's great to have sponsors, but even with sponsors, you have to realize that it's a two-way relationship. It's not an all-important person and then little you. 
It's about two peers and peers give and take from each other, which is a whole nother skill to learn. And that's what makes work exciting because you could be working, I don't know, think of your least interesting industry. You could be working there and still learn. How about that? I think yeah, that's an excellent point, especially in the fact that um, you know we have a lot of folks who are in government and higher ed, uh, nonprofits, which are not, you know, always the most exciting places to work in terms of you know things move rather slowly, and it's not a fast place. Um, you have to have a lot of patience. So recognizing that you know finding this mentor sponsor relationship with someone, and then using that to kind of help yourself develop your skills, help develop um, empathy skills at the very least for them um, is really uh, a, key, a key thing that people could do to kind of build that leadership skill for themselves and develop those relationships. You know, in the, in the first, um, well, actually the second book, Centered Leadership, I, uh, I got an enormous privilege. It was an opportunity I interviewed Jeffrey Canada who had been running at the time, the Harlem Children's Zone. And we talked about how when you've taken on a mission that's so much bigger than you and your lifetime, how exhausting that could be. And how you know your glass was full, and then over the years you don't even realize it, but your soul is being depleted. And when that happens, it's very hard to get it back. So before, you're, it's, it's empty you've got to be able to step back. And that's something that young people also don't realize that we have, that's the energizing piece of centered leadership. We have to be able to recognize ourselves, our bodies physically, our minds, our heart, but also our spirit when we need to refill. And we probably all do it differently. So for example, Jeffrey goes and sees different um, situations so he can learn from other educators. I get very excited talking to people who are not at all like me. So I've just been embarking on interviewing people of color at work to understand uh, their opportunities, their challenges, and what life feels like to be them. I finished interviewing 250 millennials who are not my own kids because I want somebody to help me understand what that's like. And by the way, I fill up with energy. I learn and learning is exciting, but the reason I feel energy is I'm connecting to people. And that helps me because I'm an introvert. You might find that you need to go on an adventure to the other side of the world to refill. And that's, that's because you are you and that's gonna work for you. So you need to recognize when you do that and then have the courage to do it. Even though when you come back, it will be more difficult to get back into the swing, but you will also have more energy and you'll see your challenge in a very fresh way. And particularly for those of you who have very, very long journeys to take, you gotta refresh. I experienced that myself personally this past fall. I went on kind of a uh, professional development binge, if you will, where I was, going to a number of different workshops and retreats and learning from experts. And I have to say it was very refreshing. And my hope is that our, our summit can help be uh, some of that professional development, some of that fuel for people um, as well. But that, that's an excellent point. 
Um, I know that you have new um, exciting information coming out and I won't ask you to tell us anything you shouldn't, but if there's anything uh, that you'd like to share about your um, yeah. latest research or your latest uh, adventures, if you will, we'd love to hear about those. I'm, I'm happy to share because I'm at the age where I don't have a lot of time and, and I want to make sure that as many people as can come on this journey to make work better for all talent come. And so back in the middle of 2017, I believe it was, I got a call from an organization called Makers and they make videos, uh, particularly of women who are leaders in their organizations. Uh, and great videos, and they have a conference once a year, and they asked me to do some research on affirmative action. I didn't want to do that research because uh, the jury is out as to whether it really works, and there's an awful lot of people who believe it do actually doesn't work. It creates a tremendous backlash, and people are a whole race or a whole gender will not be better off as a result of affirmative action. So I came back and said, 2017, this is a really interesting time in our country. People are saying whatever's on their mind. They are, the world is destabilizing. And in that movement, maybe we can find opportunity. So why don't I interview companies and find opportunity? I'm sick and tired of the fact that great research has been done for the last five years or longer by Catalyst by every consulting firm, by Center for Talent Innovation, by you name it, Parity for Paradigm, uh, Paradigm for Parity, sorry about that. And you know, McKinsey, Deloitte, Accenture, PwC, KPMG, Bain, BCG, name them all. They all want to do research to show you what to do to help women advance. And I thought, okay, maybe people aren't telling the truth. What if I interviewed them anonymously, confidentially, and then they would tell me the truth and I could aggregate all the interviews and then tell the world the truth, whatever the truth is. So that's what I started to do. In the end, I've interviewed people at 60 companies. I've, uh, I targeted one HR or diversity person, one business person, both senior executives. And I ended up with uh, women and men uh, of all races, uh, of all uh, sexual identities. It was a pretty extraordinary uh, journey. And now here's what I have to say. This is not going to be uh, enjoyable. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, people do know what to do. They have something that I call a playbook, right? They know that they need to have employee resource groups. And by the way, they have a lot of them. Uh, they need sponsorship programs. Most companies are getting those. They need to talk about diversity and everybody does that. In fact, a lot of companies have trained people on unconscious bias. There's even more, you know, they've made pledges. The CEOs pledge for this and that. None of it's working. That's the unfun part of this. There are a handful of companies that have steadily done their own thing and they have made progress. So why? And somebody asked me, what, what is it? I think nonprofit and educators and government managers will understand this better than private business people. And here's what it is. The problem 
is complex. Complexity science has been around since the 70s. And what it does is it, it, um, it explains a challenge, a situation, not in linear analytic terms, but in people terms. Understanding that there are so many different stakeholders and they are not aligned and they don't share the same objectives. That you can't use some recipe to just go and analyze this problem and come out the other end with an ERG and say that's the answer. It doesn't work that way. There is in fact no end point. It never ends. You never, never solve it and move forward. It's a, that, it's a people problem. You know that. Anybody in the government and education and nonprofit already knows that. So you're ahead of the game. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if you don't shift mindsets, all the behavioral change that you're mandating is going to have uh, backlash or pushback or resistance. <laughs> it's not going to stick. So you have to shift mindsets, which is really, really hard and takes years to do. And then the third piece is because it's a complex challenge, you have to be experimental. You have to, in fact, use all the informal leaders that you have inside your organization, even if they're not in the hierarchy, and you have to empower them, which is a little bit scary, to go do things, and then you have to be willing to learn from the things that they do. So they might change the people processes, change recruiting, change evaluations, might not work, we'll have to change it back or change it forward. We have to be in a process of adapting quickly. And that's what agile organizations do. So to use that buzzword, which really came from innovation and entrepreneurship, the companies that are more entrepreneurial will try more things. And by trying more things, they will make more progress. And the progress is incremental, by the way. And I didn't realize that at first. I was looking for something big and exciting and silver bullet-ish until it became blindingly obvious, I'm sure you already know this, there are no silver bullets. Progress is incremental. And the more people you get engaged, the messier it's gonna be, and you'll go back and forward and up and down. But if you have shifted the mindsets and you know what the shift should be, you're gonna make progress sooner or later. So that's what I've learned. I've put it into a white paper and we're gonna publish it something like middle of February, late February. And I'm hoping that I can keep doing the interviews, keep learning what's working and make it clearer and clearer to people. Because the next question is, great, Joanna. So how do we shift the mindsets in a 3000 person organization? <laughs> and that's cultural change, you, you know. And there are a lot of change leaders who know more than I do about that topic. It's not gonna be easy. It's going to be an exciting challenge. And you have to be absolutely sure that the shift you're looking for is going to help your organization. If I you, agree. If you believe it, get everybody else to believe it too. And now we're cooking with gas. Fantastic. That's, you know, uh, I, that's my area of expertise is organizational change management. And so you are singing to the choir to me. <laughs> I'm very excited to see your research. I'm very excited to hear about this because, you know, as you stated really eloquently that there is 
no end point, that there is incremental progress and you know, we have to be patient and see that progress as it occurs and recognize it so that we can keep going on because it is you know, just a, a long-term process. It's not a short fix, is it? Exactly, exactly. So I cannot even tell you how thrilled I am to have this time to talk with you today. I truly appreciate it. And we would like to um, link on your speaker page to your book and also to your website. Will we be able to link to the new research you've been talking about as well? So I'm going to, I have uh, a couple of weeks. Yes, uh, we will have the short form briefing um, and that will go up either this week or next week onto my website. And then the long one, um, I'll either publish it through McKinsey or uh, simultaneously through McKinsey and on my website. So I just need to dot the I's and cross the T's. Sadly, it's a 30 page document. So a lot of people fall asleep over that. Um, however, I should say that 15 of those pages are the 80 actions that I've learned from the 115 people I've interviewed. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. 80 uh, actions. <laughs> and I would, I, I have in fact no government, no nonprofit, and no education interviews. So I'd be very keen if there were presidents of organizations and CHROs or CDOs who want to be part of the research. It's free. Uh, my, my time is free. And I would do the confidential anonymous interviews to in fact collect more data and understand more different kinds of organizations. So I offer that back to you. Oh, wow, that's fabulous. I, I definitely think there are people who will be uh, contacting you and saying, I would love to be a part of your research. That's fantastic. Well, Joanna Barsh, thank you so, so much. You are uh, a treasure and I truly appreciate your time today and all of your insight, your research and your books. And thank you for taking part in our summit. Oh, well, thank you for, for hosting this summit and for everybody who's taking part in it. Thank you for being part of a change process because that's got to be one of the most exhilarating but also exhausting things that you can do at work and uh, I'm, I'm impressed uh, that you're doing it so thank you for that. Terrific, thanks again.